My name is Linda and I'm going to be reading the Bible on, uh, through uh, Hosea, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Second Bible reading comes from Matthew, um, starting at chapter 8, verse 23, through to chapter 9, verse 13, um, which is found on page 833. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Beck. I've been uh, super encouraged this week uh, by just the power of God's word to change lives. Uh, I met it with a, a brand new believer on Thursday this week and just sat with him and read the Bible and it's just amazing to see lights go on and lives being transformed as, as the word was read. And Tuesday night this church was packed uh, with Alpha, with people investigating Jesus. And, and as, as the word went out, you just saw the lights going on. And I, I start with that tonight because I hope that you've come expecting God to change you tonight. As the word is preached tonight, I hope you're expecting the Spirit to do a mighty work in your life. I hope you don't come to church every Sunday just expecting nothing to happen. You know, God wants to change you. God loves you enough to change you and to transform you. And I really believe, as the word goes out tonight, that, that hearts will be changed and lives will be changed. So I'm going to pray for that tonight. Our Father, we thank you that you do love us so deeply. We often can't fathom that, Lord, but you, you, you keep on loving us, and you love us enough to keep on changing us. And so I pray, Lord, as your word goes out, it will not return empty. I ask, Lord, that your spirit, your precious life-changing spirit, would so powerfully be at work in this place tonight that our hearts and our minds and our lives might be changed. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, you probably heard of a man called Horatio Spafford. Uh, he, he was a famous Chicago wealthy Christian lawyer. He had almost a perfect life. He had a beautiful house, a beautiful wife, four daughters, one son. He was a deeply, deeply Christian man. He was a man of deep faith. And yet his, his life was marked by extreme suffering. His youngest son died suddenly and tragically. The great Chicago fire wiped out all his properties and almost all his possessions. And, and so in 1873, he planned this trip to Europe with his wife and his daughters just to, to recover from the tragedy. He planned to go on a mission trip with D.L. Moody, and so Spafford sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him. And you know the story. The boat collided. All four of his daughters drowned. It was just his wife left. He lost everything. Spafford boarded a boat to travel from the US to England to be with his grieving wife, Anna. And as he travelled across that seas, he, he penned those now famous words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well. 
It is well with my soul. How do you write that? How do you do that? The only way you do that is by this deep, deep faith. As Spafford describes a peace that passes all understanding, this calmness in the chaos that was inexplicable because it flowed from his faith in Jesus Christ. When I think about people of faith here at church, I think about the woman who's gone through the most horrible, messy divorce, unjust suffering, unjust, and yet there's no bitterness and no revenge, just this calm in the chaos. I think of the woman who lives with chronic pain and yet there's deep joy. I think of the, the man who has deep, deep, deep depression and yet he clings on to Jesus. I think of broken-hearted people, hurting people, wounded people who, who have this deep faith in Jesus. What does that word faith mean? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Uh, there was a missionary called John Payton. And part of his job was to translate the Bible. And in the language he was translating to, there was no word for the word faith. He didn't know how to translate that word faith. I might just grab this chair, Linda. One day he was sitting at his desk and he sat down on his chair and he said to this man, what am I doing? He said, oh, I'm sitting on a chair. And then... Peyton, he lifted both his feet off the ground and he leant back on the chair. He said, what am I doing now? And the man said, you are leaning all your weight on that chair. Leaning all your weight. And that's how Peyton translated the word faith. Leaning all your weight on. Not some of it, but all of it. Not trusting in your own strength and your own feet to support you, but, but leaning everything onto Jesus. That, that is true faith, not token faith. You know, faith isn't about just believing certain facts, certain truths about Jesus, that God is sovereign and God is good and God is powerful. They're easy to say. But faith is, is when you don't just know them, but you live them. You breathe them, you bathe in them, you delight in them, and you experience them. And yet often God takes us through the trials until you reach that point where you lean all your weight onto Jesus. That's where we're heading tonight. These three encounters with Jesus where you see these different views of faith. We're in Matthew chapter 8, this incredible chapter of extraordinary miracles. I want to start with a confession there. I, I, I need to confess to you, church, that, that I really, really, really can't see anymore. The, the Bible here is all blurred. It's like this. I've been further and further away. Actually, I've got size 18 font on my iPad now. But when I put these on, when I put my glasses on, when I get over my vanity and put my glasses on, I can see. And I think that's what faith does. It's like the lens where you can see the world and you can see yourself and you can see Jesus. So we're going to learn three words that you can experience if you really do lean all your weight on Jesus. Here's the first one, the word peace. 
When you learn to, to put all your weight on Jesus, you can experience this deep peace that passes all understanding. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 23. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat. Now, when you see that word boat, don't think massive ship. It's, it's, a, it's a fishing boat. It's about eight meters by two meters. It's quite tiny. It's quite small. Verse 24, suddenly a, a furious storm came up on a lake, and, and so the waves swept over the boat. The word for storm there is the word seismic. It's a, like an earthquake. It's not a, a Sydney storm. It's not a, a downpour. This is a, a, a cyclone. This is a tempest. This is violent. And the tense for the, the waves sweeping over the boat it is an ongoing thing. that They kept on sweeping and kept on sweeping. So the boat's being swamped. And these hardened fishermen are, well, they're drowning. Now, what is Jesus doing? Verse 24. But Jesus was sleeping. And again, it's the same tense there. He, he's sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. He keeps on sleeping. Now, how do you do that? How do you sleep in the middle of a storm? How do you sleep when you're surrounded by chaos? Now listen carefully. The answer to that is you can only sleep if you either know the one who controls the storm or you are the one who controls the storm. You can only sleep if you know the one who has power to stop the storm or if you are the one who has power to stop the storm. And I think this is a window into our world. This picture of being in a storm, it's a picture of our world. The world that we live in is, is full of chaos and, and disasters. There's, there's floods and there's cyclones and there's droughts and there's bushfires. And we call them natural disasters, but the Bible says, no, no, our creation is groaning. It's out of joint. It's not as it's meant to be. And, but it's not just nature, is it? Let's be honest. It's not just nature. It's the, the storms that you face and I face. The storms of life. You know, often we, we charge through life and we, we've got our, our perfect plans in place and we are settled and, our, and we're happy and it's all sorted and, and then just stuff happens. Hard stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. And it kind of pulls the rug from under your feet. It unsettles you. No, no, not more than that. It, it shatters you sometimes. You know, that diagnosis the unexpected loss, the broken relationship, the financial ruin, the deep loneliness, and life can suddenly seem out of control and you can't fix it and it hurts and it's unsettling and you're being tossed around and you're not just perplexed, you're paralysed. If I'm perfectly honest, I feel like I've been living in a storm personally for the past 12 months. Stuff has happened in my life which... It's been so painful and so hurtful and so unsettling. And I feel like I'm being tossed around and, and I feel helpless and, and I feel alone. Let's be honest about life. Tough stuff happens, doesn't it? You're not immune to it. Verse 25. The disciples went and woke Jesus saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. 
And, and you can hear the panic. You can hear the urgency. They are terrified. These hardened sailors are terrified. We're going to drown. The word is perish. They say, they say, Lord, we can't save ourselves. We're not strong enough. We're not wise enough. We're not powerful enough. We can't do it, Jesus. We need you to save us. Now, here's the question. Can Jesus save them? If he's just a good teacher, then he might have the theory of storms, but he can't stop it. If he was just a carpenter's son, then he's got no chance of calming a storm. What they're asking for is, does Jesus have the power to calm this storm, and does he have the care to calm the storm? I love the reply in verse 26. He replied, you of little faith. Read that again. You have little faith. Not, not no faith, but little faith. They do have faith. They'd seen Jesus heal. They'd seen him drive out demons. They, they'd seen his power. They do have some faith because they come and ask Jesus for help. But I think they have token faith, not true faith. Jesus wants them to, to lean all their weight onto him, to really do believe that in the fiercest of storms that Jesus has the authority and the power and the care to do something about it. You have little faith, he says. Why are you so afraid? I hope you know that fear is the opposite of faith. And faith is the opposite of fear. Fear and faith cannot coexist I'm not saying you can't be sad and you can't be flat or you can't be anxious, but we're not paralyzed by fear if we know the one who has power over the storms. Now here's the miracle in verse 26. Jesus got up and he rebuked the winds and rebuked the waves and it was completely calm. So notice Jesus didn't just calm the sea. He, he rebuked the winds. He rebuked the waves saying, stop, stop, no more. You are not going to cause any more chaos. Now, Jesus has the power to do that, doesn't he? Do you believe that Jesus has the power in your life to actually stop all the stuff that is causing you so much pain? Oh, you may choose not to, but that doesn't mean he's not able. Verse 27, they ask, what, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man has the power to calm the chaos? And the answer is only God. Remember in the book of Job when Job is whinging at God and there's that turning point in chapter 38 where, where, where God kind of puts Job in his place. He says, okay, Job. You think you're so amazing and so powerful. Where, where were you when I created this world? Where were you when I threw the stars into space? Where were you? Can you, can you control the weather? Can you stop the storms? And it's quite humbling but to say, actually, there are things that happen in our lives that we, we cannot control and we do not control. And what we really need is someone who has the power and the authority over the, the darkest of days and the fiercest of storms. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, Jesus spoke to the men first, to the disciples first, because they were the most difficult to deal with. The wind and the waves could be rebuked afterwards. I love that. 
We need to learn from this church. I, I, I don't know what you are facing right now. I, do, I don't know what you will face in the future. It could be health issues, relationship pain, tragedy, loss, loneliness, sickness, suffering, sadness. But there'll be moments in your life where you are so unsettled and so shaken and you feel like you've been tossed around and you're utterly helpless. And you need to learn to lean all your weight on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. I think sometimes God takes me through darkest of days and the biggest of trials just to remind me that I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not in control. My temptation is to to keep at least one foot on the ground. And in those moments, I, I question God's power. Could God really stop this? Or I question his care. Does God really care? I question his sovereignty. God can't be in this or over this. And it's like Jesus has been shouting at me this week, Paul, you cannot stand up and preach this sermon. You cannot stand up and preach this sermon until you've run to me and let me hold you and let me carry you and let me love you. Because oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what pain we needly bear. When you lean all your weight on Jesus, you can and you do and you will experience this deep, deep, deep peace. Number two, it's the word freedom. When you lean all your weight on Jesus, you'll experience this freedom from all the powers of evil. So we move from the the natural to the supernatural, from the raging sea to the spiritual realm. Look at me, verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side, to the eastern side of the lake, in the region of the the Gadarenes, and so we're in Gentile territory, and we know that because there's this herd of pigs. You'd never get a herd of pigs in Jewish territory. Verse 28, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met Jesus. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. So so you've got these two men and they're living in the graveyard. They're living in the place of the dead and demons love the place of the dead. And these two men are inhabited by an evil spirit. It's overriding them. It's controlling them. They are formidable and they're violent and they are volatile. Let's stop there. I think that's a lens onto our world. Because what we see with our human eye, is not all there is. What you see and feel and taste and touch, that is the natural world. But there is a supernatural world. There is a spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, there are good spirits and there are evil spirits. And behind the evil spirit is the prince of demons who is called Satan. Let's talk about demons. There are two dangers. Some people see demons everywhere. They're behind every action, every illness. There's some demon out there. I don't think that's us here in Sydney. I think we underestimate demons. We underestimate the evil spirits. We, we pretend that it just doesn't exist. Way too many Christians ignore Satan and minimize Satan. Satan has been active since the beginning of the fall, he's been whispering and lying and tempting and deceiving. and He's seeking to stop the unbeliever from coming to Jesus. He's blinding the eyes of the unbeliever. 
But for the believer, he's, he's deceiving us. He's causing us to doubt. You know, Ephesians 6, your, your battle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the, the spiritual realm. Do you believe that? Did you go through life seeing in the world there's a battle going on? There's evil out there. What about demon possession? I have to say demon possession is very, 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 very rare. Even in the Bible, it's, it's almost like the extreme of evil spirits. But around the world today, there is many, many, many people in, in countries around the world that, that are demon-possessed. And interestingly, it is often linked to those countries where they elevate witchcraft. Now, here's the scary thing. In Australia, there's been a massive uptake in interest in the occult or the dark arts. So no surprise that we are seeing an increased sense of evil here in Australia. I'm not talking about demon possession, I'm talking about being evil. But please don't be naive, there is an evil realm. Now what the disciples had little faith, the, the demons have great faith. The, the, the disciples ask in verse 27, what kind of man is this? But the demon knows exactly who he is. Verse 29, they said, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. So when they come face to face with Jesus, they say, Jesus, you are God. You are the son of God. And, and, and these demons, they, they recognize his power, his authority. They're terrified. They are powerful, but they're not more powerful than Jesus. Only Jesus is all-powerful. And so they just beg down in verse 31. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. That is fascinating. It's like demons, evil spirits, that they can't be homeless. They, they need somewhere to reside, and if it can't be a human being, they'll take pigs. And Jesus says, verse 32, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And again, that is fascinating because remember the, the intention, the, the, the real intention of Satan is to kill and destroy. And that's why these pigs are destroyed because it's this picture of the evil spirit going into the pigs, and you get this visual representation of the true intention of Satan to kill and to destroy. That's what he wants. But here's the main point. Jesus has power. Total control over it. And it's so easy, isn't it? It's so effortless. He just says one word, go. Go. And they go. Jesus restores his two men with just a word. He drives out the demons. Because, because friends, you've got to believe that Jesus has total authority and total power. He is not scared of Satan. The devil means nothing to him. No power can stand against him. No curse assault his throne. And I hope you believe this, not, not just in an evil realm, but you've got to believe that your Lord Jesus Christ is way more powerful. You know, what does John say? When Jesus comes, light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's no way that Satan could have any more power than Jesus Christ. Or, or Colossians chapter 2, that, that Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan at the cross. So if you've believed in, in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got nothing to fear. Oh, be realistic. 
Satan is prowling around and he's whispering and he's lying and he's tempting. He's, deceiving. he's probably doing that to you right now. He's probably saying, what's all this demon stuff? Don't believe in that. Uh, don't be fearful of, of demon possession. I, I don't think a Christian can be demon-possessed. If you believed in Jesus, then the Spirit of God is in you. And greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. So you can't have demon possession. He can't inhabit you, but he can mess with you. He can trick you. He can tempt you. He can deceive you. He loves doing that. So I hope you live your life with this confidence in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are totally free from the, the evil realm. You just say, get behind me, Satan. Do you ever say that? When he tempts you and he messes with you, get behind me. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Do you ever talk like that? I don't know, maybe... You're not leaning all your weight on Jesus. And so you're so naive about the spiritual realm that you've been sucked in by his crafty deceptions. I love the theology of the demons as well in verse 29. They're spot on. The demons begged and they said this, verse 29. Have you come here, Jesus, to torture us? Before the appointed time. They've got their theology right. There, there is an appointed time in the future. And on that day, called the last day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory, then all hatred and all hate, all evil, everything demonic, everything devilish, will be destroyed once and for all. And Satan himself will be thrown not over a cliff, but into a lake of fire. That's the freedom that we have. We don't fear evil anymore, because we're in Christ. Lastly, if you lean all your weight on Jesus, you experience this full forgiveness. This incredible guilt has gone, the burden has been lifted, and you are fully forgiven. Let's read it in verse chapter 9. Jesus stepped into the boat and crossed over and came to his hometown. So we're back in Capernaum, perhaps at Peter's house. Verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. So these men have obviously heard about Jesus, his power to heal, and it's a pretty easy mathematical equation. You've got a paralyzed man whose legs don't work. You've got the most powerful healer in history called Jesus Christ. So paralyzed man plus healer equals his legs will work. That's what you expect to happen. But it's not what happens. Not just what happens. Keep reading. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, I love that line, when Jesus saw the faith of the friends... So these friends really do believe in Jesus. They're, they believe in his power to heal. They believe in his miracles. And we're not told that the paralyzed man has faith, but his friends did. And when we see a friend in need and when you believe in the power of Jesus Christ, then, then we do everything we possibly can to get that person to meet Jesus, don't we? That's what we should do. <laughs> when you've got a friend in need and you believe in the power of Jesus, you do everything you possibly can to help that friend to meet Jesus. I reckon that verse is a great motivation for evangelism. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, this is quite an offensive verse, he says, take heart, literally cheer up, son, 
That's beautiful. That's familiar. That's affectionate. Now, what do you expect Jesus to say next? Take heart, son. Be healed. That's what you expect. Take heart, son. Get up, take him out, and walk. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's be clear what he's not saying. He's not saying this man is suffering because he has sinned. He's not doing that direct correlation. Sometimes that's the case. Often it's not. Sometimes we just suffer for living in a fallen world. But son, your sins are forgiven. And it sounds pretty cruel, doesn't it? Because this withered, paralyzed man who's been lying on a mat for years and years and years, he wants his legs fixed, not his sins forgiven. And you imagine this man thinking, oh, that's lovely, Jesus, but actually I'd quite like to walk again. And I think that's a lens on our world, isn't it? Because this man's biggest problem is not his paralysis, it's his heart. It's not his legs not working, it's, the, it's his sin in his life. The man's biggest need is not healing, but, but forgiveness. Now, now, Jesus does both, but his biggest need is forgiveness. Do you see the world like that? Uh, we all know Mahia, Mahi Maleki. Uh, I, I knew Mahia many, many years ago before he was a believer. He used to walk into this church. But then in February 2017, he had his surfing accident and he broke his neck and was paralyzed and couldn't walk. And so I went into North Shore Hospital every Monday afternoon. I took my laptop and I did Christianity Explored with him. And if you know that course, there's this session three where it's talking about the healing of the paralytic. And so we're watching this video and Mahi says, oh, let's just stop there. So, so paralysis, I said, yeah, it means his legs don't work. Oh, like me, he says. He says, oh, so, so Jesus is saying that this, this, this man has got two problems. Uh, his legs don't work and they need healing. And he's got a problem with sin and he needs forgiveness. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, and Jesus is saying that, this is, this is Mahia paralyzed on a bed in a hospital. He says, and Jesus is saying that the, the forgiveness of sins is this man's biggest need rather than his legs being healed. Now, how would you have answered that as you're sitting at the bedside of a paralyzed man? I took a deep breath and went, yeah, that's right. Forgiveness of sins is our biggest need. And Mahir said, yeah, Jesus is right. That's my biggest need, forgiveness of sins. Is that how you see your family, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues? I know they've got problems. I know they've got issues, financial and health and relationships, but their biggest, deepest need is forgiveness of sins. That's your biggest need. That's my biggest need. That's their biggest need. But can Jesus do it? Verse 3. Uh, this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, the, the Bible teachers said, this fellow, this, this upstart, they can't, bring themselves to use the word man, that this nobody is blaspheming. He's claiming to do what only God can do because only God can forgive sins. They know their Bibles. They've got it spot on. Imagine that you've been involved in a road traffic accident and you've been hit by a drunken teenage driver, a joyrider, and, and it's so bad you, you've had both of your legs amputated at the knee. Just imagine that. 
and, and you wake up in hospital and, and I'm sitting next to you at your bedside and I'm writing a letter. And you say to me, Paul, what are you doing? Oh, I'm writing to the joyrider who caused the accident. Why are you doing that? Uh, uh, because he wrote to me after the accident, and, and he wrote to you, rather, after the accident, and he asked for your forgiveness. I'm writing on your behalf and say, I forgive you. And you would say to me, Paul, that's outrageous. It's not your right to forgive him. I'm the one here with no legs because of him. It, only I can forgive him. Does that make sense? And I hope you realize with your sin, it's not just that other people can or should forgive you, but what you really need is, is your heavenly father, God, your father, to forgive you, because ultimately you've sinned against him. That's what we really need. Full forgiveness from our loving creator God. Now, can Jesus do it? Now, verse 5, which is easy to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. How would you answer that? Which is easy to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. I had a light bulb moment this week. I've always thought it is easy to say, your sins are forgiven. Because it's easy to say, oh yeah, your sins are forgiven. Because no, no one can really see that. No one really knows if that's true or not. You can't really test that. But if I said, get up and walk, and you don't walk, then it's pretty obvious that I'm a fraud. So I've always thought it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. But, but then I've realized this week that, that Jesus is not talking to ordinary people. He's talking to Bible scholars who know their Bibles. And throughout the whole Bible, there are many examples of, of human beings who have healed lame people. Elijah and Elisha and Moses. And, to say get up and walk, it's not unusual to, for someone to claim to do a miracle but in the whole of history, in the whole of the Bible, no human being has ever said, has ever said, son, your sins are forgiven. Because only God can say that. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He has the authority to forgive because he is God. And he proves it. I want you to know, verse 6, that the Son of Man, Daniel 7, has authority, has power, has the right to forgive your sins. I want you to know that I can do the internal work of forgiveness. And to prove that, I'll do the external healing as well. So get up, take your mat and go home. See, healing of the paralytic and forgiveness of sins, both of those two things are impossible for human beings. But neither are impossible for the Son of God. That's what Jesus is offering you, offering me. He's offering us full forgiveness. The religious people needed that, the, the leper needed that, the demon-possessed men needed that, and we need that. We all need it. Corrie ten Boom says this, Jesus loves sinners. He only loves sinners. And he never turned away anyone who came to him for forgiveness. Jesus has the heart, he has the ability, he has the power to forgive your sins, and he went to the cross for you. There's a great book by Sam Storms called A Dozen Things God Did With My Sin. A Dozen Things God Did With My Sin. Let's let just wash it over this. God laid your sin upon his son. God forgave your sin. God cleansed your sin. God covered your sin. 
God cast your sin behind his back. God removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. God passed over your sin. God trampled your sin underfoot. God cast your sin into the depths of the sea. God blotted out your sin. God turned his face away from your sin. And God has forgotten your sin. He quite simply refuses to remember it. That's what Jesus has done for you. And we should be utterly amazed at that. And I fear sometimes that we are so good at focusing on our sin that we forget that we're fully forgiven. I fear that we wander around almost like we've gone to the doctor and he's given us the, the solution and he's, he said, I can heal you, but you just won't let him heal you. You keep living as though you're a sick person. If you're in Christ, if you put all your weight on Jesus, there is nothing you have done in your past, there's nothing you're doing right now, there's nothing you will do in the future that, that cannot and will not be fully forgiven by the blood of Jesus. you believe that? You are cleansed. You are covered. You are washed. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are restored. And you are fully, 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 fully forgiven. I love the last word that Jesus spoke to the paralyzed man. Get up, take your mat, and he doesn't say walk. Get up, take your mat, and he doesn't say go to the temple. Get up, take your mat. He doesn't say go and do good works. He says, get up, take your mat, and go home. Home. That's what it feels like when you just grasp how much you are loved and how much you've been forgiven. You feel like you're home. Home with your God, home with your Father. You are fully loved and fully forgiven. And church, that's my deepest desire for everyone here. That you wouldn't just have token faith, but you'd have true faith. You would lean all your weight onto Jesus, not just in the terrible times, but every day just bathe in him, delight in him, trust him. And then you might experience a, a peace that really does pass all understanding and a freedom, a freedom that holds no bounds and, and a forgiveness that is full and free. I heard a great illustration. I'll, I'll finish with this. Someone said to us, said in this talk I was listening to, so often we have gift voucher faith. Gift voucher faith. I love that. Because if I, if I give you a gift voucher, so I give you a $50 gift voucher, then it has a limit. I've given you $50 and you, you can spend more than that, but you have to contribute of your own money. And so often we, we, we see Jesus like that, as though he's given us a gift voucher faith. He's given us a, a bit of forgiveness and a bit of peace and a bit of freedom, but I can contribute in some way. He doesn't give you a gift voucher. He gives you a blank check, if you remember checks. He gives you a, a gift card which has unlimited value on it and says, you'll experience a, a peace which, which is beyond your understanding. You'll experience a freedom that you just can't comprehend and a forgiveness that is so lavish and so full that you don't live with any fear or any guilt. That's my longing. That you'd come to Jesus and lean all your weight onto him. And maybe like Horatio Spafford, you'd be able to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let me pray.
Our Father, I want to thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have this deepest of peace. And, but I do want to pray, Father, for people here tonight who are in the midst of a storm, for those who are hurting, for those who are in pain, for those who are grieving, for those, Father, who feel as though that they've been unsettled and shaken and in a storm. And I pray, please, Lord, you have the power to stop and the power to calm that chaos. So please, Lord Jesus, do that. But in the midst of that, Lord, would you give us this peace that, that passes all our understanding? Lord, give us eyes to see the, the, the true reality of the spiritual realm. Forgive us, Father, for our naivety. And we do say, get behind us, Satan. Get behind us, Satan. I want to pray also, Father, for those... There are people here tonight who, who are still carrying burdens and still carrying guilt. There are people tonight, Lord, who are not enjoying you as they could or they should because they, they haven't really believed they're fully forgiven. So, Spirit of God, would you, would you cleanse, wash over those people tonight? Liberate them, please. And may they enjoy you as their glorious Saviour. In his name we pray.